Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Alison Gopnik understands babies and children as the R&D division of humanity. From her cognitive science lab at Berkeley, she investigates the evolutionary paradox of the long human childhood. When she first trained in philosophy and developmental psychology, the minds of children were treated as blank slates. But she's led on the frontier, helping us see how even the most mundane facts of a three-year-old or a nine-year-old or a teenager, from extravagant pretend play to risky rebelliousness, tell us what it means to be human. The creativity of the young human brain, she says, literally helps us all stay creative and growing as a species. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I have a question. I, I, I generally ask um, everyone I interview, whoever they are, um, just wondering about the spiritual or religious background of their childhood, however they understand that now. But it, it occurs to me, you know, a word that you know, you are trained as a philosopher. That was your your first love. And, and I wondered, I would kind of add to that, kind of how would you think about the spiritual, religious, or philosophical background yeah. of your childhood? So we were brought up as absolutely militant atheists, um, militant, serious atheists. That was very much the creed in our household, um, and I retain that creed to this day. But on the other hand, what I like to think of as sort of the numinous rather than the spiritual, the sense of mm. awe and relation to a world that's much bigger than you are, a set of emotions about the significance and meaning of what's going on around you, although that whole that whole set of emotions and feelings and beliefs, that was something that was very much part of my childhood. I mean, essentially, I've, I've written about this. Our creed was modernist literature and art. So, yeah, right. um, so we got taken to see the Seagram's building the way that other kids would have been taken to see a cathedral. And we went to see Beckett and Brecht. In fact, we acted in, in Beckett and Brecht the way that... Uh, that other kids might um, might go to church. So so we had some very intense aesthetic and literary values, and I do think those intense aesthetic and literary values are very closely connected to what's often called spiritual values. And you were the oldest of six children who were born in 11 years. Is that right? That's right, yeah. And I've heard you say that you love... That you loved children, that you were fascinated with babies and children. You had that early, very personal experience of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think as often with oldest sisters particularly, um, older siblings and older sisters become a kind of surrogate uh, parent. And actually, part of the work that I've done scientifically, I think it's a really important point is that for most of human history, uh, babies and children were being taken care of as much, if not more, by older siblings, yeah. by other people in the community as they were by their their biological moms. So when you've had six children in 11 years, the way my, my mom did, um, you know, a lot of the focus is on this new baby who really takes a lot of caring. And that means that uh, as the older sibling, I was spending a lot of time taking care of the younger siblings. Um, so you you did study philosophy. Talk a little bit about that 
that move for you from that as your focal point to babies as your focal point? Yeah, so from the time my uh, little philosophical formation story, myth, is that oh, when I was about 10, I read, um, I read Socrates for the first time. I read Plato. And in particular, I read the Apology and the Phaedo. And the Phaedo is a wonderful dialogue where um, Socrates is trying to deal with the question about where it is that we come from. So how is it that we have, seem to have this soul, and yet the soul seems to come out of nothing, and there's a long discussion about where the soul could come from. And I do vividly remember thinking as I was reading that, well, it comes through having children. You know, you have children and then you pass on a soul to those children. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of remarkable that in that discussion, there was not even a mention of children. Children just didn't appear. And in fact, if you read most of Western philosophy, um, children didn't even appear. Children didn't appear as part of moral argumentation. They didn't appear as part of ideas about where the mind came from or where knowledge came from. And it seemed to me very, very quickly that there was a really great project that you could do trying to take all of this information about children that we were just beginning to to uh, accumulate and thinking about children in the kind in a kind of deep philosophical way and that was particularly true because the philosophical question that i was most interested in captivated by is what i sometimes call the problem of knowledge which is how is it that we ever know anything about the world around us all that reaches us from the world are these tiny little you know disturbances of air at our ears and photons on our retinas, and yet we all know about a world, and in the end, we know about a world full of, you know, quarks and quasars. How is that possible? How could that possibly ever happen? Um, again, this is kind of big, deep philosophical yeah, yeah. question. And it seemed obvious to me that if you wanted to really answer that question, the place to look was at the babies and children who were the ones who were actually doing that learning. Um, but when I started out in philosophy in the 1970s, People looked at me as if I was kind of crazy. <laughs> to Wanting think to talk those about two that. Things. And, and so yeah. you moved to experimental psychology, is that right? Yeah, that's uh -huh. right. So I did my, my first degree, my BA, mostly in philosophy with a bunch of psychology courses. And then I uh, went to Oxford for my DPhil. And after a while, I realized I could spend the rest of my life with either a community of completely disinterested seekers after truth who wanted to find out about the world more than anything else, or a community of sort of spoiled narcissistic creatures who demanded that women take care of them all the time. And since the first group was the babies and the second group was the Oxford philosophers, <laughs> I would rather spend my time with the babies. With the babies um, asking the deep questions. <laughs> um, uh, that's a little unfair, but it's not completely, it's not completely inaccurate. Um, Are you familiar with, there's a, there's a proverb in... It's in, in Judaism, but also in, there's a version of it in Islam that before a child is born, the angel Gabriel tells him everything, all the secrets huh, yeah. of the universe, mm -hmm. then kisses him on the forehead, and he begins gradually to forget it all. And I remember when my children were born, you, you do have this feeling that they know everything, right? And they're and you've been studying this scientifically. There are uncanny ways that they feel knowledgeable and wise and intelligent. Um, I just feel like maybe that proverb is kind of pointing at that. But but as you say, science wasn't looking at it, and and philosophy wasn't really looking at it. 
It's interesting because if you look at the spiritual traditions, and I've done a bit of this, um, there's lots of moments when people recognize or say something about the fact that babies and children have a kind of wisdom, a kind of exploration, a kind Mm -hmm. of way of seeing the world that's really different from the adult uh, version and that we we lose as uh, we lose as we get older. And one of the things that we've been doing scientifically in the lab, the thing that I'm actually most excited about at the moment and my my uh, new book it will will be about if I ever finish writing it, is that we can actually show scientifically the differences between the ways that children's minds and brains work and the ways that adult minds and brains work that capture, I think, the thing that those spiritual leaders and poets and you know, generations of of mothers and caregivers were seeing in the young children. Um, and one way to think about this is a contrast that actually comes from computer science um, between exploring the world and exploiting the world. Right, so right. most of the time as adults, we're in this state of uh, how do we uh, make how do we make use of this? Exactly. We're mm-hmm. in this state that the you know the Buddhists talk about as being, Maya or Wordsworth very vividly describes by saying, getting and spending, we lay waste our days. Right. Um, but, you know, we need to get and spend to be able to function in the world, including to be able to take care of our, our children. Um, so most of the time, as adults, we're in this kind of narrow, goal-directed, uh, focused state, which is great, right? I mean, we would never get anything. Right. We would never get Civilization anything done if we too. weren't. Yeah. Sorry? Civilization needs that, too. Absolutely. That's right. Um, But I think that the other kind of state that we're in is a state in which we are released from the demands of exploitation. We're released from having to think about what do I need to do next? And we are able to explore the range of possibilities, the range of possibilities in the world, the range of possibilities of thoughts, the range of hypothetical ways the world could be that are different from the way the world actually is. we're able to be open to information that's coming from lots of different sources, information that's coming from the world all around us. And that state is the state that I think uh, young children are in pretty much all the time. And yeah. and part of what happens as we get older is that we transfer, we move from being in that kind of state of wild exploration. And then we kind of narrow down into this exploit phase as as adults, and I think there's That's an argument to be made that prefrontal cortex clicking in, right? Yeah, helping us get control and planning. Yeah. Exactly, and even if you look biologically, what happens is you get this early brain in which many, many, many new connections are being formed, and then you get this tipping point about age five, actually, where the connections that are formed get stronger and are are more efficient. But then the connections that aren't formed are, are pruned, kind of disappear. And you get much more of this prefrontal control. So you get the kind of executive office of the brain controlling much more of the rest of the brain. Um, and I think it's interesting that if you look at certain kinds of adult experience, like mystical experience, like uh, some of the um, work that we've been, I've been thinking about at Berkeley, if you look at the effects of certain kinds of psychedelic substances, which seem to have effects that are very much like the effects of various kinds of mystical experiences, experiences in meditation, um, those are all adult experiences 
uh, numinous experiences that seem to replicate in some ways that that return to exploration, mm-hmm. that return mm-hmm. to not being in control, that return to a sense of openness to the world at large. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with cognitive scientist and child psychology professor Alison Gopnik. I'm very interested also in how you think about then the shift to adolescence. Um, and I feel like there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in this culture. Like we kind of gear up for our teenagers mm-hmm. to be problems. And, you know, you've said adolescence is not a problem to be solved. And one of the interesting points you make is that on the one hand, yes, there's this cute moment of rebelliousness in our species. And clearly there's there are lots of developmental things going on. But that also pro-sociality, altruism are linked, are another mm-hmm. side of that rebelliousness. It's so interesting. How's that work? Well, well, we've done, you know, uh, when when I was saying before about the children switching from sort of exp- exploration to exploitation, we've actually done a bunch of studies that show that, in fact, children are more creative, can consider more possibilities early on than they than they can later on or they can as adults. But then we had a version of that where the problem was a social problem. It was about explaining why people did what they did rather than explaining, say, why a machine lit up. And... What we discovered there, somewhat to our surprise, was the preschoolers, the four-year-olds, were very creative. Um, The adults were not creative. That was consistent with other people's uh, findings. Uh, There was a decline at school age, which is what we'd found otherwise. But there was actually a burst in creativity in the social world in adolescence. Mm. So the adolescents were actually the ones who were the most flexible when it came to thinking about a solution to a problem like, why did that person do what they did? Um, and I think there's a lot of reason to believe that adolescents are often kind of at the cutting edge of, of social change. And part of that is this capacity to think about all the different possibilities about the way the world could be. And I, I feel like we're in, we're in an historical moment where that feels like it's on display, right? That, that, that the great name in, in our encounter with whatever is happening with the natural world is Greta, you know, is a yeah. teenager. And um, it's not a new idea that that substantial culture shift happens in generational time as opposed to mm-hmm. election cycle time, <laughs> although, although we're all acting like that's not true right now. Um, but you are making a different point. You're, you're saying that minds, that like the mind of a, mm-hmm. our species changes through generational change, um, more than individual change, that that generations, I want you to put it in your own words, but this is how I like yeah. to understand, that, they could, that they're continually kind of kicking us out of whatever rut we're in, whatever exactly. stasis is there. That's right. And if you think about Greta Thunberg, but it's not just her. I mean, she's become this face of something, but it's, it's I mean, t- teenagers in general are very interesting. Um, I mean, I think also of the of the kind of imprint the Parkland kids made yeah. as they raised their voices, as they modeled a different kind of reaction. I mean, I, you know, and also in the sense of calling out an, an, a nonsensical status quo um, and pro-sociality because what they're speaking and acting on behalf of is 
is the the greater social good in the most expansive sense. Well, I think one piece about that is the way that we care about each other. So Mm -hmm. in the sort of, you know, Western philosophical tradition, um, the way of trying to articulate our ethical obligations or the ways that we take care of each other tend to be these very contractual kinds of pictures. So I'll do this for you because you'll do that for me. Yeah. Even if you think about, you know, even the golden rule is sort of like that, right? I mean, if right, I, right. I, I'm going to coordinate what I do, treat other people the way that they, yeah. I'd like them to treat me. And then rational me and transactional. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't, you know, you shouldn't diss that. That's the basic... Uh, brilliant insight of the Enlightenment, and it's the insight that's led to a much, much, much better world than we had before. Uh, It's led to things like being able to use markets and being able to have democracy, taking that kind of individual relationship of here's a contract and and putting it up on a national scale. Um, But there's another tradition that goes back. It's interesting. People like Ming-Xi in the the, um, the Chinese tradition argued for this. It says, you know, That's one way that we deal with each other ethically. But there's a much more profound way that we deal with each other ethically, which is the way that when you have a child, for example, that you're taking care of, it's not that you have a contract. It's just that you take on Mm -hmm. the needs and utilities of that other person. That literally, if you're caring for a child, the child's needs become your needs and often overwhelm your needs. In fact, always, (laughs) at least in part, overwhelm. your needs. And that's a really striking moral and ethical relationship. It's a kind of altruism that is intrinsic. And we, we have very good evidence now, again, from just from the science, that this kind of altruism is there even in very, very young babies. This, this ability to take the people who are close to you and just adopt. This is what their needs are. And I am just automatically out there to, to help them to fulfill those needs. That we, we've done, we did studies of this and others have, you know, 18-month-olds are, are starting to do this. And mm-hmm. that's such a different picture mm-hmm. of how ethical relations work. So for someone like Ming-Chi and others in the Confucian tradition, the real political problem is how do you scale up that relationship, those close, intimate relationships, those relationships of attachment, as psychologists say, how do you scale them up to the scale of a community or a nation or a planet? Um, And I think that's a really interesting, deep challenge. How can you do that in a way that captures autonomy at the same time? And again, in religious traditions, um, one of the things I say in one of my books is, you know, if you want to get a little taste of sainthood, taking care of a three-year-old is a pretty good way to do it. that's sort of a joke, but not really in the sense that that sense that you have of your attachment to, to children, that combination of this particular being is the most valuable being on the entire planet. Um, and I would do anything for this particular being. Yeah, there's a being. selflessness that you did not know you were capable of. That's right. And mm-hmm. I think almost anybody who cares for a child, whether mm-hmm. they're as a parent or in another context, recognizes mm-hmm. that is part of the relationship. And it's easy to say, okay, that's just an illusion that, you know, evolution has has placed on us that we continue to have more babies. But I think it's the opposite. I think that sense that you have when you're caring for a child, that this individual child, just them, just because of who they are, is the most valuable thing in the world. Not Mm -hmm. because they, you know, are particularly smart or particularly pretty. It's just them. They're incredibly valuable. I think that's when we're seeing people clearly, 
That's when we're actually mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. what human values are like. Mm-hmm. I have uh, two sisters who also have grandchildren. And we go through this thing where we sort of say, yeah, you know, that grandchild, he's, oh, he's wonderful. He's <laughs> smart. And he's, <laughs> a little bit we're saying, yeah, but he's not like, not like mine. Not like yours, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, of course, we think of that as being this funny illusion, funny grandmother illusion about how fantastic your grandchild is. Yeah. But I think there's a really serious religious point about the fact that no, no, that's not the illusion. That's the reality. The illusion is when we think that there are billions of people who don't have that worth, mm. who don't have that value, who aren't that deep and important and and worthy of love. Now, it's pretty hard. That's sort of the project of the the project of the bodhisattvas um, of the world is, or perhaps of the the great spiritual leaders is. Could you? love every all those billions of people the same way that you love your grandchild well of course you couldn't but that's a kind of model i think for how relations between people could work uh, a a kind of model for how you could do your ethics and your politics that's very different from the kind of standard model which is you know a bunch of men making contracts with one another After a short break, more with Allison Gopnik. Listen to this show and everything we do on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with developmental psychologist and cognitive scientist Alison Gopnik on what babies and children teach us about what it means to be human and, in fact, how they change the mind of our species generation after generation. Her most recent book is The Gardener and the Carpenter, what the new science of child development tells us about the relationship between parents and children. Something you said in your conversation with Ezra Klein, which I, which I so enjoyed, that one thing you've seen is that we're not just capable of caring for, for people because we love them. We don't actually care for our children because we love them, although we might think that. That love is engendered through the act of caring. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me like that has social relevance as well as as personal relevance, or it could. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk to you about parenting, Mm -hmm. which is obviously something you've you've written about and and is is just connected to the whole question of babies and children. Although, as you point out, interestingly, the verb parenting really only became popular in the 1970s, and you've you've called it a bad invention. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
it instrumentalizes the relationship. The uh, the metaphors you use are uh, two models um, would be the carpenter mode of mm-hmm. parenting, which is which is very dedicated to shaping and to bringing about a certain outcome, or the gardening, which would be providing the space, right, in which this human being can flourish. I think gardening is a very nice metaphor for if you're trying to do this project, which I would like to do of really taking caring seriously from a scientific perspective and a philosophical Mm. perspective, um, trying to find good ways of talking about it that make it be other than just just another kind of work. Um, I think the gardening is a really nice example of that because part of what happens when you garden is that you provide this space for other creatures, in this case plants, to, to grow, to thrive, to succeed. But you don't know beforehand exactly how that's going to take place. Um, and in fact, it's an empirical fact that the best way to have a, a garden is to have an ecosystem where unexpected variable things will happen that you don't know about and you can't predict beforehand. And that kind of system is much better to get back to climate change, is much better to at um, adjusting to to change, to variability, mm-hmm. than, you know, a system of hothouse orchids where you have to control everything in order to bring about a particular outcome. And I think that kind of picture is much more like what goes on with with caregiving with for a next generation. It's the very, I mean, even if you could accomplish this end of shaping a child to come out a particular way, you would have defeated the whole point of childhood by doing that yeah. because the whole point of childhood is to have each generation introduce new variability, new um, a kind of noise and randomness and new possibilities. Um, and you would actually squelch that if you, if you succeeded in shaping the child to come out a particular way. But again, we don't, have, we don't have very good scientific or intellectual or philosophical or even religious context to describe that and to talk about it um, and to make it not be just another kind of uh, another kind of work or another kind of exploit activity. Yeah, and I think you're pointing at you know a very interesting aspect of this. I mean that as you've been dis- discussing, like what childhood gives our species in evolutionary terms is this period of novelty and unpredictability and variability and and imagination and creativity and this capacity for change that makes humanity more ro- robust. Mm-hmm. And we're <sighs> We're coming out. I, I do feel like this. I don't know. I don't know what's happening with parenting. I mean, I feel like I feel like in my life, <laughs> I was born in 1960, right? So I think I feel like I've watched. You know, I think I was when I was having my children. It was kind of the attachment parenting moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's the language of the helicopter, and there's the new thing is the snowplow, like, like clearing all obstacles from before your children. And we live in this moment, in fact, children are now being raised and coming into adulthood in this moment, where, in fact, all the forms that we came into the century with are not working. Like, this is a moment where we need adaptable humans mm-hmm. and socially creative humans. I just wonder if you think about uh, all of this in the context of, if, if we think that generations change our species and move our species forward, do you worry about how modes of parenting, this n- new invention, may be in- imprinting this moment in ways which are difficult? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the good part is that even when what parents are doing is kind of dumb, children basically ignore it. Yeah. I think we probably get a fair bit of uh, robustness and variability independently of of the strange views that parents have about what it is that they're doing. But having said that, I do think there's an issue about how vulnerable children are. So we know, for instance, that there's been this big increase in anxiety in children. At the same time that, especially for middle-class children, um, the reality is that there's many fewer threats than there were um, in the past. And it's this real puzzle about why is there so much fear and anxiety around, around childhood when that doesn't seem to fit at least their immediate experience. Now, in the long run, there are certainly threats to to face. The paradox, I think it's a bit like what happens with allergies, where being protected from... being protected from threat as a child actually ends up paradoxically making you kind of set off the alarms even when there isn't a threat. Yeah, it makes um, you more fragile being as an adult. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Makes you less less robust at a time when what you really need is mm-hmm. is robustness. Now again, I think the you know, the evolutionary program is deeply enough there that this particular phenomenon in this particular generation of middle class children isn't isn't going to be fatal. Yeah, four decades of ba- of weird parenting can't ruin us. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I sometimes say, think about, you think about the greatest generation, think about the people who grew up in, you know, war-torn Europe. Um, that would seem as if that exactly. was going to be a much more damaging outcome and, and human beings and children mm-hmm. are, are pretty robust. But it is the problem of our particular time in our particular society and trying to trying in as, as a society to say no what we want our children to do is to is to be able to take risks knowing that those risks might actually really not turn out well yeah that's a very 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 difficult thing to do but a very um, yeah. a very essential thing to do and you 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 make this statement part of the pathos but also the moral depth of being a parent is that a good parent creates an adult who can make his own choices, even disastrous choices. <laughs> yeah. There's a beautiful poem by my friend Jane Hirschfield called Resilience, mm-hmm. which I won't be able to I won't be able to reproduce here. But the idea is that the kind of resilience that you want is not uh, you know, the pillow that comes back to its form every time you lie on it, but the resilience of a tree where the light is blocked from one side and it finds a way to go to the other side, mm. or the resistance of a plant that finds another path, or a river that's blocked in one way and finds another way to go. And and she says in the poem, you know, that resilience is the basis of all of life on earth. Um, and that's a really different kind of picture of Resilience. It's not that it will all bounce back again to where it was. It's that the very act of of failure or of moving in a different direction is part of what it means to be human. And it isn't that that is okay because in the long run you're going to succeed and things are going to get better. Right. It's it's okay because that's what it means to be human. And in particular, that's what it means to have a child is to watch uh, and care for and uh, identify with another creature who's going through that uh, who's going through that process of of challenge and, and change yeah it's a, it's and it's another expression of that fundamental characteristic of childhood and childhood for our species of of something happening that you cannot possibly have imagined or planned and yet it turns out to be who you are or right or what you, you know what the, the, the quality of your life 
you know, there's a there's a place where you write, maybe in the philosophical baby, the one month old turns into the two year old, and then the three year old, and then the five year old, and eventually, miraculously, into a mother with children of her own. How could all these utterly different creatures be the same person? You know, and 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 you also write so wonderfully about the metamorphosis that is childhood to adulthood. And then I'm finding I'm so fascinated right now about then the the metamorphosis that happens again as you age, right? Into <laughs> if we're all going to live to be a hundred, you know, let's call fifty this half halfway point. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm just curious about how this work and thinking you've done about childhood and our species in that sense inform your experience of the the you know the metamorphosis of of growing older yeah this is something that i've gotten very interested in i suppose for autobiographical reasons yeah. now but um you know there's a tendency to think about human development as if there's this wonderful peak of all of humanity, which is a sort of 35-year-old white guy who's writing philosophy or psychology. Yeah. Um, and then everything else is kind of a, a, a failure or an <laughs> attempt to get to that amazing peak and then in falling off from it. Um, and that doesn't make much sense from an evolutionary, uh, doesn't make much sense from an evolutionary perspective. It makes much more sense to think about what evolutionary biologists call life history. And the idea of life history uh, is that Across a lifespan, many, many different things happen, and you have different periods with different kinds of functions. So childhood is one of the best examples. So having a long childhood is different, but also just how long you live, um, mm -hmm. when you um, stop being fertile, what your relationships are to the next generation. Those are all part of life history in evolutionary biology. And evolutionary biologists think this is an absolutely crucial part of evolution, a crucial part of what it means to be an organism. Um, now, if that picture is right, then just as we should think about childhood not as being sort of a defective version of adulthood, but this separate time with its own characteristics, one of the things that's really distinctive about human beings is that we have this extra 20 years between 50 and 70 of life um, that our closest primate relatives don't have. Um, there's even a wonderful, surprising finding, which is if you look at other species, it's very rare to have postmenopausal females. But we do know that orcas, killer whales, have postmenopausal females. And it turns out there's a bunch of beautiful work showing that they also have cultural traditions. So the, the grandmothers are passing on information about what kind of food there is, where you should go, what the hunting grounds are like to the children and to the grandchildren. Um, and that's a really important part of of orca survival. If the grandmothers die, then the group doesn't do nearly as well. And I think that's even more true for humans, that the kinds of things that we do as uh, as grandparents are so different. And this is one of the experiences. It's not like kind of, you know, a easier form of parenting. It's a totally different it's a totally different relationship. Yeah. And I think I think it's very interesting to think about what kinds of adaptations we have in older life that aren't just I mean, some of it is just that we're falling apart, but but some of it is that there are things that we do that that really are designed for that last period. So, for instance, you know, that frontal control, that kind of, you know, going in and desperately trying to get things done um, that's so characteristic of our, you know, 
mid-adult life, we know that that frontal control gets seems to uh, get loosened as we get older, and as what a we relief, get into right? that older. What a relief exactly. That That's right. One of the things I say is, you know, I think everything's great about getting older except the part where you wake up and find you're in the body of a cockroach. Um, <laughs> uh, but... But at the same time that everybody's finding that somehow they've been transformed into these cockroaches, mm-hmm. we're all a lot happier than we right, were before. Right, happier um, as a cockroach. Yeah. Uh, that which seems seems kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we're not we don't have the kind of intense erotic feelings that we did when we were young, and yet the love that we feel for our, our partners is feels deeper and more profound and just as important, maybe even more important. Our love for our grandchildren is as deep and profound as our our love for um, our love for our children. One one other thing I say is, you know, I think you could make an argument that basically we're human up till puberty and after menopause, and then in between, we're sort of glorified primates trying to do all those primate (laughs) things about mating and dominating and finding our way in the social hierarchy. That is such a good image. I love that. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with cognitive scientist and child psychology professor Alison Gopnik. I want to kind of invoke the philosopher in you. I mean, I mean, one of the big questions across time of the human condition, certainly of philosophy and theology, but also I feel which science is picking up in interesting ways now is this question of consciousness, mm-hmm. what it is. And I'm really curious about what, what, how you think about that after this life you've lived and, the, and also the life, and I do mean the life you've lived, so both as a human being and a, a mother, as well as a, somebody who studies uh, the evolutionary paradox of childhood <laughs> in our in our species. Yeah, I I've thought a lot and and, and written and and even done some studies trying to answer this question about you know what's consciousness like for babies and children mm-hmm. and what can that tell us about consciousness in general, and you know it's a big mystery. But my view is that we I think it's very unlikely that what will happen is we'll get one single answer to the question of what is consciousness that it's going to turn out to be, you know, a particular neural vibration or a particular yeah. part of the brain or uh, integrated information or all the, a lot of the things that are kind of on the table. I think what's going to happen is we're going to find lots of different relationships between phenomenology, between ex- conscious experience and different kinds of of functions and brain states. And one of the ones that I think is most interesting is this relationship between that very broad, open, kind of mystical experience, um, that experience when the whole world seems to be full of meaning and significance and you're open to everything that's going on in the world. Um, That experience, I think we have very good reason to believe that that's a lot like the experience of babies and children. So, mm-hmm. And I think everyone who's cared for a child has had that experience of looking at those wide eyes and yeah. and just feeling as if there's a kind of pure, open awareness that you see in 
in those children that's very different from the kind of typical awareness that we have as adults. Um, one of the fascinating, completely sort of unexpected, fascinating things that's happened recently is, as I mentioned before, this work with uh, psychedelics, where it turns out that when you look at brains under the influence of, of psychedelic substances, you see a pattern that looks very much like the childhood brain. Many, many local connections, mm. much less frontal control, um, much more plasticity, much more flexibility. Right. And the therapeutic uses of those substances which seem to be coming out are connected to this this increase in, in flexibility about the fact that, you know, we're not just kind of making it up that children have that kind of wide consciousness or that it gives them a way of thinking about the world uh, that is is really deep and valuable and connected to these other kinds of states of awe and uh, and openness and awareness that, that have been seen as being the province of religion. And of course, the big question for an atheist scientist, the way I am, when you're considering those things is always, well, okay, is this just a hallucination or is this capturing something that's real? And I think childhood might be quite helpful in suggesting that no, that state is tracking something that's important in the world. It is really tracking how full of information, how how wide, how awesome well, uh, right, and the, the world actually is. What you hear about that is so transformative for people is this sense of the spaciousness of reality, which we can't, which we don't always comprehend in our very purpose-driven days, but. Exactly. Right, that spaciousness makes sense that that's also the experience of the baby. I mean, that's the true experience they're having. It's a new world. And that's right, you know. Yeah. I mean, it is true that the world is larger and more fascinating and uh, and more full of information and there's more to find out about it than we ever think about. Scientists have that feeling because that's that really is true about what the world is like. Yes. And, and when children have that feeling, they're tracking something that's truer about what the world is like than, than we adults in our getting and spending, we lay waste our days yeah. uh, primate phase. But what that also says, an aspect, an, an implication of that observation about children is that each and every one of us actually has an experience of that that way of being conscious and mm-hmm. and somewhere in our bodies we have that memory. I mean, I'm curious as you've kind of, as a young scientist and then a person going through your entire life and also really contributing to this field, do you think it's possible to kind of intentionally claim that part of our experience? Or has being around children and studying children and being fascinated by them... Is there any way that you think that that's allowed you to carry the the child in yourself? Um, no, I think that's I think it's absolutely right, and it's something that is very under um, underappreciated uh-huh. and experienced. And caring for children is such a a profound thing because, on the one hand, it's the most grown up, responsible, caring thing right. that we do, but on the other hand, it gives us a chance to be in that expanded yes. universe. Yes. You know. I say you walk down to, you know, going to get a pint of milk with a three-year-old is like going to get a pint of milk with William Blake. Suddenly you realize that there's three blocks of completely ordinary suburban street that has become literally become completely invisible to you. Suddenly you realize how rich it is. There's dogs and there's flyers and there's potholes and there's birds overhead. Um, And, you know, for me now as a a grandmother... um, 
I'm simultaneously became a grandmother and am very, very deeply immersed as you are when you become a senior scientist in the world of of getting and striving and doing things and having deadlines and all the rest of it. And for me, the the release from that world is the time that I spend with my grandchildren. And again, I think because women have been the ones who've traditionally been most engaged in that caregiving, that that whole side of thinking about caring for children as itself uh, a sort of profoundly spiritual experience in both senses, both because it involves this kind of altruistic moral relationship yeah. and also because it gives you a chance to be in this in this world of open awareness. Yeah, I kind think, of in that zone with That's them. right. And yeah. I think it's been really invisible in the tradition because it's it's been um it's been women women with children who've been doing it. And even among women, the women with children have been so busy raising the children that they haven't had time to write about it and, <laughs> and talk about it and do science about it and do philosophy about it until relatively recently. Yeah. I do want to ask you, just before we finish, um, just really pointedly to this, to this fascinating idea you have about how our species grows and progresses and changes through the effects of generations as opposed to mere individuals and you're somebody who now has you have students you have you have you have grandchildren you have adult children um do you think about right now how this particular generation of teenagers and young adults um is shifting challenging changing us as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things about being human that, again, we maybe don't acknowledge as much is that you know, the nature of human nature is this ability to change and this ability to be connected to a great historical past of all the people behind you and then also to be connected to these future generations that are going to do things that are different from the things that you do. You know, the myth of Orpheus is this myth about the past where you go into the future and you, you every time you turn back to try and recapture the past, it just vanishes. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a kind of reverse myth of Orpheus that we have as parents, which is that we see our children, those new generations, drifting off into a future that we can't reach and we can't mm-hmm. even yeah. visualize. Um, and the more we look into the future, the further off they the further off they seem. And there's something, as in the myth of Orpheus, there's something painful and and sad about that. But there's also something encouraging. There also is a sense that even if, you know, as as Martin Luther King said, you know, even if I won't get there uh, with you, I can see that you're going to get there. Yeah. And I think that's that's always a feeling that we have, and a feeling that becomes more and more intense as we get older. When I know that, you know. I won't see the solution uh, or not to climate change. I'm going to have to s- imagine my grandchildren, you know, going off into that future that I isn't an, even an imaginable future for me. Mm-hmm. But, but the past is that, at least the past history, is that human beings have succeeded in doing that, that they've yeah. succeeded in in being able to envision possibilities that weren't there before. They've succeeded in being robust in the face of uh, changing environments. They've succeeded in actually making the world a different place than it was before. And that imagination, that capacity for fiction, uh, is actually one of the crucial things that allows that to happen. So, so of course, the hope is that that... And it 
It is interesting that in the context of the climate crisis, it is the children and the young people who are active and hopeful as opposed to somewhat despairing, which I think is the way a lot of older people end up feeling. Um, And that's clearly the... That's clearly the the road that we can imagine uh, by which we can imagine a hopeful future. There's this wonderful quote. I can't remember where he did this. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus said that no man ever steps in the same river (laughs) twice because neither the river nor the man is the same. Our Mm -hmm. lives and our history as a species are that sort of ever-changing, perpetually flowing river. Which is so much more resonant with thinking of your work in mind and just the metamorphosis that every individual person undergoes in the course of a life. Yeah, I think often when people are thinking about science and scientists or the science of human nature, they see it as a a rather reductive part of saying, okay, here's the constraints on what human nature is like. Here's what humans are doomed to be. Yeah. Uh, here's the the way that humans are doomed to be. And I think... I think actually the science tells us something very different. What the science tells us is that there's this this stream, this river, this ability to change in unpredictable ways. And when we see our children, we actually see that in, in real life for for good or for ill. Um, but that's, that's what human nature is all about. I mean, human nature is culture. Uh, what's innate in us is our capacity to learn and change. That's what human nature is really all about. And I think that's a a much more hopeful and positive picture than maybe some of the pictures we've had in the past. Alison Gopnik heads the Cognitive Development and Learning Lab at UC Berkeley, where she's a professor of psychology and affiliate professor of philosophy. She's published more than 100 journal articles and several books, including The Scientist in the Crib, The Philosophical Baby, and most recently, The Gardener and the Carpenter. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Marie Sambilay, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, Colleen Sheck, Christiane Wartell, and Julie Seipel. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org discoveries, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality, supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at calliopeia.org. 
Humanity United, Advancing Human Dignity at Home and Around the World. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.